So would you say that you're on the road that leads to heaven? It's an interesting question, isn't it? It's an important question. In fact, I would venture to say that your answer to that question may be one of the most significant of any that you could ever be asked. Now, I'm not going to do this, but what if right now we dismissed our worship service and said, spread out, spread out around this community. Let's go to some of the bigger stores that are open today around our community, and we're going to do an interview. We're going to do a kind of our own survey. And as people come into Owens or Walmart or Meyer or wherever, uh, we're going to ask them the same question, and this is the question. Are you on the road that leads to heaven? Or if you want to ask that a little differently, you could ask the question, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? Now, what would you guess to be the most common response to that question? Maybe, maybe you've done this before. What do you assume to be the most common response to that question? I sure hope so. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think the most common response to the question, are you on the road to heaven or do you think you're going to heaven when you die? The most common way people respond is, I hope so or I sure hope so. Now, if we could, in our CCC survey here of our community, if we could kind of probe a little bit, explore a little bit with people and ask the question next, so what do you mean by that? What do you mean that you hope you're on your way to heaven? What kind of responses do you think we would get to that question? Probably something like this. Well, look. I know I'm not perfect, but at least I like to think of myself as a pretty good person. I try to be kind to others. I give to some of the charities here in our community. I go to church sometimes. And hey, never killed anybody. And that's supposed to bring a smile. And so we want to ask one more question. And that is this. So do you think you've been good enough? Or to ask it more specifically, do you think you've been good enough for God? And what kind of response do you think we'll get then? No. <laughs> I think probably what we would get more than any other is a more subdued response like the first one. I think you're going to get responses. Try it sometimes with people you work with, people in your neighborhood. You get a response that's more subdued that people say, well, I sure hope so. If you have a Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and open it to Galatians 5 if you haven't already or your phone app. Today's sermon in Galatians 5, that passage Janine read, I'm calling this passage, Stay on the Gospel Road. And while you're turning to Galatians 5, if you're not there yet, let me reread verse 1 again, the last verse of the passage Pastor Mark preached last week. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1, in some ways, is kind of like a theme verse for the whole book to the churches at Galatia. That verse about freedom in Christ, standing firm in the freedom of Christ, not only kind of summarizes the message of the book of Galatians, but it's a bridge to our text today. 
Thank you, Janine, for reading that passage. What we're going to do today is this. This is a challenging passage in some ways. Maybe some of you are uncomfortable even as you heard some of those verses read. It's an awkward passage to preach, friends. Paul, Paul's pretty upset. We're going to look at this passage in three paragraphs. And each time we read a paragraph, I'm going to at least briefly explain what I think was going on in the Galatian churches. And then I want to spend time bringing it into our world. How does Paul's message to the Galatian churches impact us here in the 21st century? So let's reread now verses 2 through 6 just to get it planted in our minds. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But only faith working through love. How would you summarize that? Here's how I summarize that first paragraph. Being on the road that leads to heaven, I'm calling it the gospel road, means that we live in freedom. Freedom from the perils of a works-based attempt to earn eternal life. Well, let's ask that question. What's required to enter heaven? What's required? God has a standard by which he will judge all of us. And the Bible sometimes refers to that standard by which God will judge all of us as righteousness. Did you pick that word up in verse 5? Verse 5 is significant. It says, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, you might read that several times, even as we have already this morning. And you realize Paul's looking at the future, isn't he there? We eagerly hope. We we're waiting in hope, a sure hope, not a, well, I sure wish this happens, but a sure hope, I'm confident it will, a hope for something that lies in the future. He's calling it the hope of righteousness. Friends, you and I will each stand before God someday. When it's your turn, when it's your turn to stand before God, what do you want to hear coming from the lips of the judge of the universe? What do you want him to say to you? You want him to pronounce you right, or to use the bigger word, righteous. We want God to proclaim us righteous. Right in his sight. Righteousness, by the way, is more than just being neutral. It's more than just being innocent. It's a positive statement, a positive rightness. In other words, God looks at us on Judgment Day and says, you have met all of my requirements. I pronounce you right in my sight. So we want to ask the question, well, how's that going to happen? God requires perfect obedience. There's a verse in one of those tucked away little books of the Old Testament, Habakkuk, that says about God or to God, your eyes are too pure to look at evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. That's a categorical statement about God, about God and his holiness. The Bible says that God can't even stand to look at sin. 
<coughs> that he can't tolerate wrong. And that you and I, in our candor, in our openness, we would all confess, I was born a sinner, and I have committed sin after sin against the God who made me. I've committed crimes, crime after crime, against the high king of heaven. So here is a God who cannot tolerate wrong, and yet you and I would openly confess that we've all broken his laws, we've all committed crimes against him multiple times. How can this dilemma that we're facing ever be solved? How can our greatest dilemma ever be solved that God is a holy God, a holy God who cannot tolerate wrong, and here I am, a spiritual criminal, how can I ever enter heaven? How can I ever get God to pronounce me right? Well, the members of the Galatian churches were being bothered by agitators who said, in essence, if you want to go to heaven, having Jesus is a good thing, but you need something else too. I mean, let God do his part, but you need to do yours too. And so if you want to get to heaven, in addition to Jesus, you need to be circumcised. Jesus will do his part, you do yours. And they were proposing a formula for salvation that was Jesus plus. Jesus plus. You need to be circumcised. Now, obviously, Paul's not dealing here with what we know in our modern era as a medical procedure of circumcising baby boys. That's not the point here. It wasn't just a surgical procedure. It wasn't some standalone Jewish ceremony. This is a different culture than what we're used to, so let's think of for a minute here. What was going on? Here were not Jewish men. Here were Gentile men, not babies. These were grown men, and there were these false teachers, there were these agitators in the churches around the Galatian region saying, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to be right with God, you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus circumcision. What are they saying? For a Gentile man, a Gentile adult man to submit to circumcision, he was committing to something. He was committing to more than a few days of pain. He was committing to a whole system you see, circumcision was like the entrance into the Judaistic system. It was, it was like the Pledge of Allegiance to the Jewish system. It was like saying, by submitting to circumcision as a Gentile man, I am now embracing the whole system of Judaism. I will keep the law of Moses. It was a very decisive step. And when Paul heard about what was going on in the Galatian churches, he wrote this passionate letter. And he said some very bold things to these people. He said things like this. Did you hear them? If you accept circumcision, he said, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He won't be any good. He won't be any benefit to you. He says, if you submit to circumcision, you're now obligated to keep the whole law, everything. And if you do that, you're severed from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. This issue of putting a plus after Jesus is no minor issue, is it? 
This is not just a little nuance, a little different perspective. This, this is upsetting. That someone would say that you need to put a plus after Jesus. Let Jesus do his part. You do your part. It was implying that Jesus is not enough. It was like taking a no confidence vote on Jesus. I don't think what Jesus did in his life, in his death, in his resurrection is really sufficient. I'm glad for what he did, but I need to do my part too. Friends, let's think about this. Can anyone, anyone, perfectly keep the law without fail? Paul had already written in this letter, Galatians 3.10, and I quote Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of law are under a curse. Now, why would that be? Because it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. He's actually alluding to a verse from the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 27.26. Paul's actually alluding to the very law that these people said, you need to keep this. He said, if you attempt to be right with God through keeping the law, you're going to live under a curse because you're going to fail. Everyone does. Everyone will. He was teaching the Galatian believers never, never put a plus after Jesus. Don't say, why need Jesus plus? There's only one road that leads to heaven, and God has already provided it. And if you were to look at some signpost, like we say US 30 or Interstate 80, if you look at this road that leads to heaven, what's the sign on it? It says, Christ alone. Christ alone. That is the road that leads to heaven and the only road that leads to heaven. You know, you read a passage like Galatians 5 and, and you say, oh, you know what, I have a hard time relating to this. I mean, I mean, this whole circumcision issue, not one I stay awake late at night thinking about. I mean, you know, this isn't an issue that we face today, usually. But you think of the underlying principle here. What was going on and how does that relate to us today? The temptation to put a plus after Jesus is not just a Jewish issue, is it? It's bigger than that. It's a tendency of all of us, it's human nature, to assume that we need to do something to earn God's favor, that we can do something to get God to smile on us. Now, think about any religion in the world apart from biblical Christianity. I don't care what it is. Think of any religion in this entire world apart from biblical Christianity, what do they all have in common? They're man's attempt to build a road to God. I'm down here, he's up there, metaphorically speaking, and we need to find a way to build a road to God. And so different groups of people come up with different systems, but interestingly, in the end, at the bottom line, they're all essentially the same whether it's keeping sacraments or praying five times toward Mecca or knocking on so many doors. They all have the same root. Do something. Do something to earn God's favor. And it's not just organized religions. 
I think even as individuals, we can be tempted this way. Yes, I'm going to stick my neck out and even say we professing Christians can sometimes subtly slide toward this mindset that I need to do something or stop doing something to get God to smile at me today and to get God to smile at me on that day. It's our natural tendency as fallen human beings to think of salvation as some sort of cooperative effort. He'll do his part and I'll do my part. Somehow feeling like we can contribute to our salvation just seems logical to us. It just feels right. I just feel better about myself if I feel like I'm doing something. Isn't it interesting that passage Janine read where Paul talks about the offense of the cross? What, what's he mean by that? Why would the cross be offensive? One of my mentors who's now with the Lord, John Riesinger wrote this one time. He said, preaching circumcision and works panders to a sinner's flesh and has him looking inside himself to find the will and the power to please God and earn grace. To preach Christ crucified is to strip sinners of any hope in themselves and to urge them to cast themselves on the mercy of God alone. One message is inoffensive to pride and therefore popular. The other is offensive and not popular at all. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is offensive to people because it strips us of our pride. To say to someone, you can do nothing to earn God's favor. You cannot bribe him. You cannot twist his arm. You cannot wow him with your goodness, your theology, your promises. And when we hear the gospel message in its purity, until God's intervening grace comes and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that feel, it's offensive to us. My friends, trying to contribute to our own salvation, attempting to build our own road to heaven through our contribution is fatally flawed on several accounts. The first is it's fatally flawed because it grossly underestimates God's standard of perfect holiness. I would guess people that are unacquainted with the Bible assume that God will somehow grade on a curve. And as long as I can find other people who are worse than I, I think I'm all right. You know, maybe God will grade on a curve. It's a gross underestimation of God's standard. His standard, friends, is perfection, pure holiness. The second fatal flaw is a gross overestimation of our goodness. Now, I've used this illustration before. In fact, I think I've used it from the CCC pulpit before for kids' sake. I feel if the kids get it, maybe the adults will too. But the illustration, some of you may recall me sharing before, it's mythical, it's one I've made up. But imagine that we could somehow go to San Diego on the Pacific Ocean front. And there's a dock going out into the Pacific Ocean and, and we're standing there at the beautiful scenery of San Diego and, and we see two men 
running down this dock, running for all they're worth, and, and jumping into the ocean. And we're watching this thinking, what in the world are they doing? <laughs> and they climb up onto the dock and they make their way back to the shoreline again, facing the ocean, ready to try it again. And we can overhear them talking. And the one guy says, I think I made it 18 feet that time. And the other one says, ha, I bet I made 20. And they turn toward the ocean and they run for all they're worth and, and they kerplunk into the ocean again and they come back to do it again and again. And finally, somebody questioning the sanity of these two leapers says, what are you doing? And they say, well, we, we want to go to Sydney, Australia. We want to go to Sydney. And we don't like airlines. So we thought we'd just jump over. We're pretty athletic and we're just going to jump over to Sydney. And, you know, and you'd, you'd be calling the authorities by that point, wouldn't you? Like, the, these guys aren't balanced. They're at least half a bubble off. I mean, these guys think they're going to jump to Sydney, Australia. Sydney, Australia is thousands of miles from San Diego. And these guys think that they can somehow jump from San Diego to Sydney. My friends, that story is ridiculous. But you realize how more ridiculous it is for people to think, I'll leap up to God's standards. Uh, I'll try harder. I'll stop doing that. I'll start doing that. I'll jump up to God's standards. And they've grossly underestimated the standard, grossly overestimated their own abilities, their own goodness. But there's a third fatal flaw. And the third one, most people haven't thought about that much, but I'm going to challenge you with it today. The third fatal flaw of trying to earn, at least cooperate or contribute to our own salvation is this. The attempt to contribute to our own salvation is an offense to God. He is offended. What do you think us trying to contribute to our own salvation feels like to God the Father? What are we saying about his son, Jesus Christ? What kind of statement are we making about his perfect, loved son, Jesus Christ? We're saying, well, you know, Father, I don't think your son, Jesus Christ, quite did it all. I think I'm going to somehow contribute to my salvation. He, yeah, I'm grateful for what he's done. I mean, he did his part. I'm going to do mine. How does that sit with God the Father? Did you ever stop and wonder, why did God design salvation like he did? I mean, he's God. You, you, you would think he could maybe design salvation somewhat differently. Why did he design it this way? Well, the Bible tells us. One of the more well-known passages in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by, you can say it with me, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God designed salvation to be grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, on purpose. Because he wants his son to get all the glory. 1 Corinthians 1 ends with this memorable statement. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And oh, we have this glorious future awaiting us, fellow Christians. 
when we're going to gather around the throne of his son, Jesus Christ, on that glorious day. And beside us, people from every people group, from all the ages, singing the same song. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he saved men for God from all these different groups. Worthy is the Lamb. My friends, God the Father will not ever tolerate anybody thinking they're going to get to heaven and strut their stuff. There ain't going to be nobody strutting their stuff before the throne of God. Saying, I made it. I thought I would. Pretty good person. And that isn't going to happen. God the Father will not tolerate sharing his glory with ill-deserving sinners. That his son gets all the glory. My friends, the only way you and I can ever be right with God, to ever hear his pronouncement of rightness, righteousness, is through Jesus Christ. Let me just read selectively from some passages. Romans chapter 3, but now, listen to where righteousness comes from. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. I'm a word geek, and I looked that word up, apart in the original language, and guess what it means? having nothing to do with. Now righteousness from God has appeared, having nothing to do with the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says a little bit later in that passage, then what of the boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For the, we hold that one who is justified by faith is so apart from the law. Over and over again, Romans 8, precious passage. For what the law was powerless to do, weakened as it was by the flesh, that's you and me, human beings, God did by sending his son. All these attempts to make ourselves right with God just couldn't work, didn't work. But God provided the road, the only road that leads to heaven, and it is through faith in Jesus Christ. He became a curse for us. He took our penalty. The righteous for the unrighteous, Paul Peter says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we still have two paragraphs, and I know it's sprinkling, so I'll speed this up. <laughs> what about that second paragraph, verses 7 through 12? That's the one that some of you felt awkward about as it was read, didn't you? What's going on here? Well, there were agitators in the church, churches of Galatia, trying to get believers to get off the path that leads to heaven. And it doesn't come out as clear in the ESV as I wish it were, would, but um, it's kind of a, a running, running picture here. So here are the Galatian believers running on the road that leads to life. They're running toward heaven by grace through faith in Christ. And here come some other people, these false teachers, these agitators. And, and maybe you've seen this happening in races where, where someone tries to cut off somebody. They try to cut them off and maybe even trip them and make them fall. Well, that's kind of the picture here that these false teachers, these agitators are trying to cut off 
these believers in the Galatian churches. Paul says, don't let them do that. And if we were to summarize this paragraph, the second paragraph, I would summarize it this way. Staying on the gospel road, standing firm in the gospel, will require determined resistance to other so-called gospels. Now, we might not have the same false gospels today as they had in that part of Turkey back then. Uh, we might have different agitators, different spiritual seducers. But even though the details are different, I think the problem is the same. You know, our own Matt Harmon has recently written a commentary on the book of Galatians. I don't think it's in print yet, but I saw a prepub copy and uh, Matt said this. He said, hindrances to believing and obeying the truth of the gospel are just as present today as in the first century. Whether the hindrance is false teaching or pleasures of this world, believers must be vigilant and diligent to run the race of the Christian life by faith in Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Matt's right, isn't he? He's right. Even though the details are different, the problems are the same. You and I are inundated by all these people pushing us and pulling on us, trying to get us to think, well, maybe this isn't the right path. Maybe this isn't the road that leads to life. Maybe there's another road. Maybe I need to think of something else. So for we, and I'm speaking to us as a church, CCC, if we are going to stand firm in the gospel, we need to be people of deep conviction. What I mean by that is this. Are we sure of what we believe? The first century, first century Roman Empire was very pluralistic. And so is our world today. We're not the first culture to be pluralistic. How do we know? How do we know that the gospel message of salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? How can you be sure of that? I mean, you work with people. There's people in your neighborhood. You're probably related to people who say, nah, come on. Don't be so narrow. Don't be so bigoted. There's lots of roads to God. You find your way, I'll find my way. Let me say that again. Find my way, you find your way. Let's all build roads to God. How, what confidence do you have that the gospel is the only way to God? There's probably more than one answer to that, but let me give you one to hang on to. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm not getting this out of my head. You read the gospel, you read the New Testament writings, and the emphasis on the resurrected Christ is pronounced. Where the, the early Christians saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a measure of assurance. That other leaders of religions are dead and stay dead, but Jesus came alive again, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an essential part of the gospel message. Why? Because when the Father raised his Son from the dead, he was making a statement. God the Father was saying, Son, what you did satisfied all of my requirements. Rise, my Son, rise. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead in victory, in victory over sin and death and Satan you and I are confident. We must be people of deep conviction. And as Peter says at the end of his second letter, he said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And as one of your pastors, I think about that, not just for me as an individual, but for us as a church, that we need to be a church that grows in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we're a church that says, yes, I want to know the Word of God. I want to stand firm in the gospel. We need to be people of deep conviction, and we need to be people of humble courage. Now, we live in a nasty era. I was talking with someone just recently, and we were talking about how nasty this culture is getting. And as Christians, we don't need to fight fire with fire. Uh, Peter says in his first letter that, that we can give an answer to the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. And I think if we're confident in Christ, we don't have to get ugly. We don't have to get mean-spirited. We don't have to become proud. We have a humble courage that we know that Jesus Christ is a Savior. And then that last paragraph, briefly, verses 13 through 15. What's the point of that paragraph? Are you looking at it? It has a lot to do with freedom. Let me say it this way. Relying on the grace found in Christ alone leads to freedom in life. It gives us freedom to love God and to love others. How, does, how do people in this world describe freedom? I, I saw this just recently um, on a history video I was watching. They were interviewing people about what does the Statue of Liberty mean to you? And I was fascinated with one answer, and in some sense I thought, well, that sounds very American. Um, most Americans would say, well, freedom is an absence of any boundaries, absence of any restrictions. It's personal independence. I want to be able to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, wherever I want to do it. I want to be free from all boundaries, all, all restrictions. It's about me. Friends, excuse me, but isn't that an echo of the very first sin? What was Adam and Eve's sin? They were declaring independence from God. Satan said, Eve, you, you don't have to listen to God. You don't have to submit to him. Why, why let him rule your life? Why let him tell you what's right and wrong? You can decide what's right and wrong, Eve. You can chart your own course. You, you can cut your own life. And she bought into it. How did that turn out? The world's way of thinking about freedom is I get to do whatever I want to do. And you know the sad thing is, I was thinking about this, and I'm trying to put it into words, so excuse me while I read my own writing here. The tragic irony of the sinful pursuit of trying to promote ourselves and protect ourselves, it's about me, in this quest to be pseudo-autonomous gods, is that we all end up alone. We think we're pursuing freedom, but this determination that it's about me, my rights, my right to determine my own identity, my right to determine my own direction in life, my right to determine my self-promotion, we end up being little bubbles of self-proclaimed gods living in a world of other bubbles of self-proclaimed gods. And we try to weave our way through this confusing world, bubble bumping into bubble, autonomous God running into another autonomous God, offending one another and being offended by one another, because I have my rights. 
And it's not freedom at all. It's aloneness. It's slavery. It's slavery to sin, slavery to self, slavery to society, and slavery to Satan himself. But I think this last paragraph teaches us that the gospel brings true freedom. There's a vertical freedom here that Paul alludes to, a freedom from sin and the curse that our sin has brought. We can know forgiveness from God. We can have access to God. It's, it's a freedom from the bondage of fear and, and, and uncertainty. It's not a freedom to do whatever I want to do. It's a freedom to be who God wants me to be. That God is my creator. God is my redeemer. And my quest in life is not to find myself. My quest in life is to find him, to know him. And in knowing him, to know myself, that I am his created being. I'm an image bearer. I'm by redemption, his son. And that brings freedom, freedom to be who he designed me to be, freedom to be what he redeemed me to be. But there's also a horizontal freedom, isn't there? A freedom with other people. That rather than going around bumping our little pseudo-autonomous bubble against someone else's pseudo-autonomous bubble, the gospel allows us to love people. How do we love people? What motivates us to love other people? Some of you know this verse. We love because he first loved us. And so we don't have to look at another person saying, well, they treat me right. Before I can treat her right, I need to know, is she treating me right? Do, do I like the way he's talking to me? If I don't like the way he's talking to me, I don't have to talk to him with respect. And this is called freedom? I don't think so. But the gospel changes us. That the gospel grips us with the inexpressible grace of God. And being gripped by the grace of God, we become, as the fruit of the Spirit, more gracious toward other people. That when we reflect on the vertical love we've been shown by God through Jesus Christ, we realize that I am super saturated with his love. And I have more than enough love to show other people. That we love as he loved us. My friends, that is freedom. That is freedom that comes as a fruit of the gospel. That's what life looks like on the road that leads to heaven, the gospel road. So how does this, in conclusion, how does this impact our lives? For those of us already in Christ, Christian friends, this freedom that we have in the gospel should bring deep assurance. Now think with me. What if the gospel were 99% Jesus and 1% you? What would you be thinking about on those nights you couldn't sleep? You'd be thinking about that 1%, wouldn't you? Well, if, if salvation is dependent on me, even 1%, I, I, I got to start asking, did I understand enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I do enough? Works-based religion is a do religion. Do more, do better. But the question is always there, is it enough? And people live with the fear of uncertainty. Their lives swinging like a pendulum between pride and depression, pride and depression. 
But the gospel, my friends, is not a do religion. The gospel is a done religion. That Jesus Christ has done it. He has done it. My friends, what was the victory cry of Jesus as he was dying on the cross? What was it? It is finished. It is finished. That the gospel is a done religion. Jesus Christ has done it. He has won our redemption. He has won our forgiveness. And you and I hang on that. We hang on that. My friends, 100% Christ, none of me, brings great assurance to the soul. There's no bondage to the uncertainty or the dread of wondering if we've done enough. One of, my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I have a list, is Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Oh, oh, how precious is this message. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. My Christian friends, I realize we all struggle at times with our doubts, but let me ask you afresh today, how much of God's condemnation is hanging over your head, fellow Christian? How much? Not a drop. Not a drop. There is now no condemnation. And oh, I love that old hymn of Charles Wesley from nearly 300 years ago. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amen. Hang on to the gospel, my friends. Stand firm in the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. But what of those of you who are not yet in Christ? Boys, girls, teens, adults, what of those of you who are not yet in Jesus Christ? I ask you that first question again. Are you on the road that leads to heaven? And if you say, I sure hope so, Can I lovingly share with you a gripping proverb? Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And I would not be loving you. I would not be loving you if I didn't warn you about the road you're on, if it's a road other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might feel good about your contributions, that you somehow are winning God's favor, that you think you're earning his smile. And it seems right to you. That road seems right to you. But you, you look and you realize ahead lies the precipice. It's a way that leads to destruction. One of the most simple statements of the gospel in the Bible is at the end of John's first letter. He said, whoever, listen, Whoever has the Son 
has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. And so if you came to our worship service today, if you're listening online, and you would be one of those people who would say, I, I would be among those who would say, I sure hope so. Can I ask you today to abandon that road that leads to death and put your faith in Christ alone today? That your slavery to the uncertainty of, I hope so, can be replaced with a freedom that comes with a hearty, tear-stained, grateful, yes, by the grace of God. I am on the road that leads to life. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes.